0: Let's turn in the scriptures to 2 Peter 3. It's called 2 Peter because it's Peter's second letter, and we're actually going to see in the first verse that he references it as such. Peter was Jesus' lead disciple, and as he writes this second letter, he knows that his death is imminent. We don't know exactly the circumstance. It could be that he's in prison awaiting trial or awaiting sentence. Um, All we know is that his time is short, but in the time he has left, one of the ways he wants to use his extinguishing light, his light that is soon to fade out, is he wants to give crucial reminders to Christians, crucial reminders that will help stabilize Christians throughout life. And so we've just entitled this series, this brief series here at the beginning of the year, Reminders. There are four crucial reminders we're looking at. The first one was that the Bible isn't fiction. The Bible is not fiction. That was his burden at the end of chapter 1. Throughout chapter 2, what we looked at last week was his second burden, and that is, we need to beware bogus preachers, people who claim to be Christians but are leading people to destruction because they devalue Jesus and they promote immorality, they promote greed in their ministries. Today, we look at the third and really the most significant burden that Peter has in this letter. And that is that, although it's been quite some time since Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus is still coming. That's his third burden. Jesus is still coming. Let's read the first 15 verses of chapter 3, and we'll actually stop partway through verse 15. Peter writes, "'This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved.'" In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Notice how Peter's burdens, his, his reminders are all intertwined. He's still burdened here about bogus preachers, but particularly about how they ignore Jesus' coming. They will say, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? And notice that his coming refers to Jesus' coming, or if you look back up in, the, in verse 2, the coming of our Lord and Savior. He's referring to Jesus' coming. I'm going to point out why that's significant. They'll say, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, by means of water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This is a reference to the destruction of the flood that's recorded in Genesis 6 through 9. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise, as some people consider slowness. But he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Holiness refers to consecration, total dedication to God. Waiting for, verse 12, and even hastening, it can't get here soon enough, the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. You might get the the impression from that kind of description and even the, uh, the previous descriptions in verse 7 of fire that the current planet is going to be completely done away with. And when you compare this with like six or seven other passages of scripture, you understand that the description of judgment that is coming on the world is going to be a bit more like the flood. The world will be totally destroyed But it won't be entirely done away with. It will be remade and renovated to be new. It'll be renewed. But verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for this renewal, the the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness alone dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent. To be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. That's where we'll end our reading. I've titled the series Reminders, and I want you to notice again, even throughout this reading in the third chapter, all of the language of reminders. Verse 1, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. Verse 2, I want you to remember Verse 8, don't overlook, don't forget. Instead, recall what I'm I'm telling you. And the central reminder of chapter 3, and it's really the central reminder of this whole book, the one that all of the others kind of point toward, is Jesus is still coming. Peter refers to this monumental event of the world's future in four phrases. Verse 4, He calls it the promise of his coming, the promise of the coming of our Lord and Savior. Then in verse 7, he calls it the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Third, verse 10, it's the day of the Lord. It'll come like a thief. That is, this is a time period in which God reveals in an extraordinary way his power to judge and to save. And finally, in verse 12, it is the coming of the day of God. You might want to underline those four phrases from verse 4, 7, 10, and 12. And some people like to write in their Bibles and and use it almost like a workbook and draw a line between those four phrases to say, this is Peter's main burden throughout this section. These phrases all refer to the return of the king his glorious return, his second coming in majesty and glory when he returns in person to earth to reign as king over every government on the planet. That is the Christian hope. That is the Christian future hope that Jesus has the right to rule over creation and one day, in fact, he will in person. This is the Christian's future hope. I also want to point out now, this is one of those thousands of places in the Bible where Jesus is God. Because in verse 4, the, the coming of our Lord and Savior is in verse 12, the coming of God. You don't read those passages and say, oh, Peter's explicitly declaring Jesus is God. But when you go back and read and reread and reread, you say, Peter, who lived with Jesus, was convinced that he was God the Son in human flesh. Peter's main point is that Jesus is still coming, and I want to take it one step farther and say his point throughout this section is Jesus is still coming, but as long as the Lord delays this cataclysmic return, as long as he delays, Christians should be faithful. Jesus is still coming, and Christians are called to be faithful in three ways, and that's what we're going to work through in terms of application. While God delays his return, you should keep believing. You should keep believing. Now, Jesus, in one of his most memorable sermons, Matthew 24, that he spoke to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he had warned his disciples that the longer he delayed his return, the more professing Christians would struggle with, is he coming? No, I don't think he is. And would actually come to deny their faith. One of Jesus' disciples now, Peter, who's writing this letter, is proclaiming the exact same message in the next generation. The longer time goes on, the more followers struggle. Is he really going to come? Now, it's interesting. Peter is going to provide logical arguments for believing that Jesus is coming. But first, look at where Peter goes in verses 2 and 3. He first confirms the truth of the scriptures. He says, I'm just reminding you of what the Old Testament prophets and what the Lord Jesus himself prophesied. See, faith in the Bible is all we need. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Bible contradicts logic or that reasonable explanations can't help support our faith. They certainly can. But in the end, all we really need is the Bible. What the Bible says, what Jesus says, what the apostles say is sufficient for our faith for all of life into eternity. And after encouraging his readers then to believe what the Bible says about Jesus is coming, Peter then does offer three logical reasons that we can believe that earth's rightful king is still coming. I use the word logical in each one of the, uh, the points It's a little bit clever. If you think it's stupid, okay, that's fine. The first is what I would call a geological reason. A geological reason. This is verses 5 through 7. You might have noticed one of the back pages of the bulletin is a coloring picture for kids of the Grand Canyon, right? It's because Peter is talking geologically in this section of Scripture, and he's not getting into great, great detail. He's simply saying... We're not uniformitarians. Peter answers the assumption of uniformitarianism. That is the belief that the way things are today, the way we see them today, is the way they've always been. Peter's not uniformitarian. Peter is someone who believes in catastrophism. He believes that there have been massive catastrophes in the past. And both the Bible and the geological record argue against believing that things have always been the way they appear to be today. One of the most famous creation scientists, actually the founder of Institute for Creation Research, is an engineer named Henry Morris, who studied much in geology. And I'm just going to read a few statements of his. He says, there are many very important unsolved problems in geology and it is likely that their solution has been delayed by an implicit reliance in the scientific community on uniformity. And then he starts just listing these problems and he goes through about 15 of them. The cause of mountain building, the origin of geocyclings, not sure what these are, I looked it up, they're large-scale depressions in the Earth's crust that contain very thick deposits the origin of petroleum, the cause of continental glaciation, the cause of worldwide warm climates, the nature of volcanism, productive of vast volcanic terrains, the nature of continental uplift processes, the origin of mineral deposits, the nature of metamorphism. I didn't know what this is. It is the alteration of the composition or structure of a rock by heat, pressure, and other natural agency the origin of massive saline deposits, the nature of granitization, the origin of coal measures, and so on and so on. He says none of the above phenomena has yet been adequately explained in terms of present processes. And this is in a booklet he wrote in 1963 called Biblical Catastrophism, arguing that there are powerful evidences in the geological record of catastrophism, that there have been catastrophes throughout history, worldwide, global catastrophes throughout history, and it's wrong to, to look at the way things are right now and say, well, if they've always been like that, then we can understand the past. No, that's uniformitarianism. And you can see that Peter says things have not always been as they appear to be today in verses 5, 6, and 7. He says in verse 7 specifically, if you believe catastrophes like creation and the flood happened in the past, then it's consistent to believe that another catastrophe will happen again in the future. And that is Jesus is coming and all that comes with him. You see, his logical argument is, Things are not always as they appear to be. They haven't always been as they appear to be. There have been catastrophes. So it's logical to believe another catastrophe is coming. The second logical issue is a chronological issue. It's a time issue. Look at verse 8. He considers time from the perspective of an eternal God. It's where he says, With the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. I might just ask you, like, this is really worth chewing on for more than a minute. Do you think a thousand years seems like a long time to God? Think about the question. Does a thousand years seem like a long time to God? Or let's flip it, just like Peter does. Is a day a really short period to God? Is God like oh no, I've got to get everything done in one day. From the perspective of an eternal God who has inhabited eternity and he inhabits milliseconds of milliseconds. Is a thousand years a long time? Is one day a short time? That's the chronological argument. Don't imagine that 2,000 years since Jesus ascended into heaven is like some long time to God. Then there is an even more explicitly theological argument. And that is in verse 9, Peter argues that God has really good reasons for the delay. His third logical argument has to do with why Jesus might wait so long to return. And in effect, he tells all these scoffers, Jesus isn't coming. He says, oh, the reason he's not coming is because God's being patient with you. Verse 9, he says he's patient. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance, to turn from being their own authority and living according to their own rules in a wayward direction, and instead come to God and say, I've been wrong. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? And turn their lives and commit their lives to Jesus. That's God's reason. Peter's going to restate it again in verse 15. But bottom line, Peter says, God has good reasons for the delay. Amazingly good reasons. Amazingly gracious reasons for the delay. I've wondered... We've got people in here who are exploring Christianity. You're weighing whether you should commit your life to God. Whether you should kind of go all in. And I wonder if you've considered... That time, as you know it, could end today. Jesus could split the skies. Have you considered what would happen if the king, the rightful king on this planet, returned today? Whose side would you be on? Would the king know you as belonging to him? If you've not turned from being your own authority, I urge you, look at verse 9 and say, the reason Jesus hasn't come back is because God wants me to repent. He wants me to bring my life into line with the king to make the king my king. And this truth should transform your life. Now, to make it even more personal... Uh, as we have baptisms, I think and pray all throughout the week about the, the person or the people being baptized. And I'm just thinking about this verse in relation to Laura's life. And I just want to personalize it for her. I want it to to really come home with an exclamation point for everyone in here. We prayed, right, for the coming of Jesus' kingdom. I've been praying for it ever since I've been a believer. I've been praying for it every year since I've been a pastor. We've been praying for it constantly. Jesus, come today. Your kingdom come, right? This is how we're supposed to pray. Why didn't Jesus come in 2020? Why didn't Jesus come in 2021? Very personally, it's because he wanted to save Laura. Laura. And others like her. He wanted 2022 to be a year in which people would be saved. He's delaying his return for salvation. And Laura, we rejoice in your testimony to God's grace. You powerfully articulated how gracious God's been to you, a person like you. You were so transparent in your testimony And we pray that you never forget his patience. We pray that you live with deep conviction for his coming and that your life is shaped by the hope of his coming and that God uses you to influence other people to live for the king. This is our desire. So, why should every Christian keep believing in the promises of Jesus' return? These are promises that, as time goes on, they get harder and harder to believe. Why should we believe? Well, first, in verses 2 and 3, he said it's because the Bible's record is trustworthy. Jesus said it, the apostle said it, you, you don't need anything further. But there are some logical reasons to believe. It's consistent with catastrophes that God has caused in the past. I called that the geological argument. It's consistent with time from God's perspective. I called that a chronological argument. And it's consistent with God's good purposes to save sinners while he waits for the return of his king. I called that the theological argument. There are, there's purpose on God's part in the delay. So then Peter rests his case in verse 10 and he says, The day of the Lord will come. You should keep believing it because the scripture says it and there are strong reasons that support it. Secondly, how do you be faithful until Jesus comes? Keep growing. This is the focus of verses 11 to 14. Peter knows that faith in the second coming, the glorious return of Jesus, is a crucial facet of personal godliness. The opposite is true as well. If you deny that Jesus is coming, or you think, eh, probably not anytime soon, it will encourage laziness. It will encourage immorality. Peter knows that faith in God's promises is directly connected with Christian growth. There are connections between the precious promises of God and growth. If you really believe that Jesus is coming to reign on earth, you will live differently. And the the terms that he uses in verse 11 are, in all holiness and godliness. And I pointed this out in in the reading. This is referring to a total dedication, a total consecration. To put it kind of more, more bluntly, like where the rubber meets the road you're going to want to use your brain for Jesus you're going to want to use your time for Jesus you're going to want to use your tongue for Jesus you're going to want to use your body for Jesus you're going to want to use your skills and your education for Jesus you're going to want to use your money for Jesus you're going to want to be all out for Jesus that's what holiness and godliness means when you really grasp the reality of the promises of his return you say I want to live all out for the king right If it's really true that Jesus is coming in the the near future, what are some ways that you want to pursue growth? What are some ways that you want to keep growing? I'm going to suggest just three, and uh, these are based on the language. I'm going to dig a little bit deeper into that phrase in verse 11 first. Holiness and godliness means total consecration, total devotion. You're going to want to say, everything I do, Lord, I want to do it for you. I just wonder if some of you right now would say, if I did an an honest evaluation of my life and my relationship with King Jesus, I honestly think it would probably be more like described by casual rather than consecrated. I think it might be described by like dull rather than devoted, like apathetic, Rather than fervent. Maybe you say, honestly, just my day to day life, I live kind of with little thought of God, little thanks to God, little trust in God, little prayer to God, little acknowledgement of God. I would, I would say I'm just kind of coasting. You need to remember the promises. That Jesus is coming. You need to grasp these. You need to pray through them and ask God to bring your affection, I might call it your passion, in line with future realities. King Jesus is coming. Don't be apathetic, be fully devoted. It was, I think, when I was 18 or 19, I remember the exact place and the exact page I was reading when I became very convicted that I was passionate about things that don't really matter. And I was pretty mediocre in terms of my interest in things that really do matter. And God used that to bring me to a point of just humble confession, saying, God, the things that really charge me, the things that fire me up, are not the things that are are really central in your word. And the things that are central in your word, they honestly don't ignite me too much. Maybe you're there today. God can can grow you. Second issue, jumping down to verse 14. Your purity should be without spot or blemish. You should be pure. I'm just going to focus for a minute on moral purity. The most rampant sexual sin of our generation is indulgence in pornography. Pornography. You can read statistics about this in a couple books that I have in my office. I can send you lots of web pages about the statistics. It's an issue for both men and women. And if you've professed to be a Christian and indulge in pornography, according to this passage, you're going to be spotted and blameworthy when Jesus comes. You don't want to have Jesus return and you say, yeah, I've, I've been living in the dirt You need to make a decades-long commitment to warring against this temptation. I don't think this temptation is going to go away until we see Jesus. I first remember being exposed to pornography when I was in eighth grade. I struggled with it all through high school. By the end of high school, it had become a life-dominating addiction for me. It was in the summer after my senior year that I started to confess this and strategize for ways to defeat this this monumental monster in my life. And over the next five years, there was periodic struggle. There was giving in several times a year, but there were long periods, weeks, months of victory in between, confessing sin and getting back up. Over the last 20 years, especially with the Lord's provision of some weekly accountability through some, some faithful brothers, some in this church, some outside this church, God has given consistent victory. Not perfect victory, but consistent victory. This is a war that we need to engage in. What motivates our pursuit of purity is that King Jesus is coming You may struggle with with filth in other ways. We all have our own flavors of poison that we've been addicted to in the past and that are tempting to us now. How are you going to strategize against that so that in light of Jesus' future return, you say, I want to live without spot and without blemish? The third issue is your relationship should be marked by peace. This is right at the end of verse 14. Are your relationships at home, your relationships with friends marked by harmony? I dare say some of us avoid relationships and we isolate ourselves. Some of us stir up trouble in relationships with gossip and slander. Some of us are often giving in to boiling over with anger and harmonious relationships can't really happen because we're so irritable and so temperamental. Some of us simply can't be wrong in a conversation and our pride keeps harmony and relationships from even being possible. I wonder in what ways might your relational skills need to be reformed, realigned so that you live without fear of shame for the return of Jesus. We need to keep growing. Please do not hear me as saying, you know this if you've been at Tri-County any length of time, that we don't believe we're the good people. I don't think that we are the people who are without spot and blameless and every relationship is always peaceful all the time. That is not us. This is a pursuit. This is a matter of getting back up when we fail. This is a matter of being transparent with one another about how we're struggling this week and seeking the support of one another in our growth and our pursuit of holiness of total dedication. The beginning point, the reason I work through these things is because Peter mentioned them, and the beginning point is always just realization and confession, saying, God, I need help in these ways, and you've pointed it out to me this morning. Help me to take steps to grow in the near future. The third matter of how we are faithful until Jesus returns. We should keep believing, we should keep growing, and then thirdly and finally, we should keep evangelizing. Peter essentially says in verse 15, it already came up in verse 9, I pointed it out there, it comes up again in verse 15. Basically, remember, the Lord is waiting to return so that people have time to be saved. His patience is salvation. He's waiting so that people have time to be saved. That's incredible. This means that while God delays his return, we should be engaged in evangelism, in speaking the good news of what Jesus did and what he's going to do speaking this good news to people who need to hear it. So many times we want Jesus to return, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. We want Jesus to return because we want justice or we want relief. That can be a very vindictive and bad thing. It can be a very humble thing when those things, when those longings for justice or relief are self-centered, I would just say notice how unlike God we are. Jesus didn't come back yet so that more and more people could be saved. Say, how do I grow in evangelism? Give three simple ways. One, pray. Pray for growth. Pray for opportunities. Colossians 4 says, Pray for open doors and for boldness when God opens them. Jesus said, Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send out more people into the work of the harvest. Pray for more evangelists. Pray for your own opportunities to share the gospel. Pray for courage when those opportunities open up. Secondly, prepare. Meditate on Scripture. Memorize Scripture. I would especially say the first couple chapters. Of Romans, or the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Know the gospel. Memorize Ephesians 2 1 through 10. Memorize the scriptures that give the clearest descriptions of the gospel. And then you can read books like J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, or maybe Tim Booker's Overcoming Walls to Witnessing, or Greg Kukl's Tactics, or Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Become a student in evangelism third practice start sharing your faith just do it when a conversation doesn't go well try to learn from it write out what you don't think went well share it with a friend and ask for their critical analysis when i was in high school i was way into the art of animation and i attended a convention an animation convention in raleigh north carolina And I was thrilled to get to spend some time with the representative from Walt Disney Animation Studio. And he gave unforgettable advice. He said, if you're a wannabe animator, every great artist has 10,000 bad drawings inside of you. The quicker you get them out, the quicker you'll be a great animator. (laughs) That kind of advice is the kind of advice I'm giving today. You get better through experience. You'll get better at sharing your faith after you do it a few hundred times. Just remember that in the end, your effectiveness is not really um, the the thing that's like the, the, the silver bullet. Your effectiveness in presenting the gospel is just a tool that God uses. God wants you to be a sharp tool, but God can use dull tools. And he does it all through the scripture. He never uses perfect tools. I end here. Peter is preaching the truth regarding Jesus' coming. He's teaching that all of the sins of every individual are going to come into judgment. It's verse 10. He actually says that the whole creation is going to be burned before being remade. Do you really believe what you believe? Christian, do you really believe what you believe? If so, how should your life today change to align with this reality? Or, let me go to the other side and say you might not be a Christian. Do you think that Peter is some fire breathing, apocalyptic prophet who uses scare tactics and likes to yell? Is that your idea? I hope that what I've presented to you this morning makes you see he's actually full of logic. And I hope you saw it three times in the reading. He's full of love. Did you see he used the word beloved three times? He's writing this not because he's some wacko apocalyptic prophet. He's writing because he's full of pastoral love. It's because the Christians in front of him need to keep believing this and living in light of it. It's because he loves them. It's because the people listening to him need to live in light of reality. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us as Christians with this reminder that your Son, your chosen King, is still coming. The delay is salvation. I pray, God, that you would help us to keep believing, to keep growing, and to keep evangelizing. For Jesus' glory and others' good, I pray. Amen.